0: invite you to turn your Bibles to Mark 8. We're going to be in Mark 8, 11 through 21 today as we continue through that gospel. Mark 8. On Father's Day, it seemed appropriate to talk about questions that kids ask. Some of these are quite brilliant and ones that I haven't considered yet. How small do people have to be to be on the radio? Why do I have two eyes if I can only see one thing? Daddy, why do you have a beard under your arms? (laughs) Right? How did people make the first tools if they didn't have any tools to make them with? If Jesus doesn't have a sister, why do I need one? The average preschooler asks close to 150 questions a day, with four year old girls being the most inquisitive. She can ask up to 300. This means parents at home, caregivers, and preschool teachers are asked more questions than people in any other profession. Now, mealtime is when most questions get asked, but all day long, the questions come. And between the ages of two and five, researchers say that kids can ask up to 40,000 questions. Now, we know this makes sense because developmentally, our brains grow the most between birth and age five. And children ask questions, of course, so they can get information about their world. They're sponges, aren't they? Curiosity is behind most of their queries. And then that curiosity primes the brain. Because as they get answers, it rewards the brain with learning new knowledge. In other words, when their curiosity is nurtured, children will learn more and then ask even more. And then sometimes kids come back to the same question in different ways until they are satisfied that you have given them the right answer. But think of all the ways we are better people because we are inquisitive. It is by asking questions that we gain more profound insights, that we are able to solve problems in creative ways. Philosophers and architects and scientists and mathematicians and theologians and builders and artists and tradespeople and parents, our world is advanced by asking questions. We grow by being curious. We might consider how asking questions shows that we are made in the image of God in the Bible because He asks questions of people all the time. Beginning with Adam and Eve, Where are you? We see questions God asks of his people as he relates to them over generations. When Jesus comes, he continues that trend. There are over 500 questions that the Lord asks his people found in the Bible. As humans, we are often concerned about our own need to have answers But we need to pay attention when we read a portion of scripture where God is asking questions, particularly when he is asking why. Because the Lord knows everything. So when this happens, we know he's not really looking for an answer, although they are more than rhetorical. We must believe that his questions come as a challenge to prime our brains to learn more about him, to spur us on to grow, to have us ask ourselves, why? So in our study today, Jesus has two different types of interactions. And in response to a demand by those who don't believe, and in response to confusion by those who do believe, Jesus asks, why? Why, he says, does this generation ask for a sign? Why are you talking about bread? So today we're going to look at what the Lord is trying to say by asking why and how this can help us to know him more. So Mark 8, 11 through 21. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, asking him for a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly I tell you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, and getting into the boat again, he went across to the other side. Now the disciples had forgotten to bring any bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out. Beware of the yeast, the leaven of the Pharisees, and the yeast of Herod. And they said to one another, it is because we have no bread. And becoming aware of it, Jesus said to them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes and fail to see? Do you have ears and fail to hear? Do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000 how many baskets full of broken pieces did you collect? Kind of a dad question, isn't it? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you collect? And they said to him, seven. And then he said to them, do you not yet understand? So remember from the last few weeks, Jesus has been traveling and helping people in Gentile neighborhoods. Now he comes back down around the Sea of Galilee, and he is met by the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders. This is the first interaction we want to consider. While Mark does not give us specific words that the leaders use to confront Jesus, he gives us enough so that we get the gist. They come looking for an argument, hoping for a sign, trying to test him. Have you ever had someone do that to you? Come straight up to you, wanting to confront you, wanting to talk to you about something, and oh, you don't really want to see them coming. So we picture them getting in his face with questions, doubting he is who he says he is, telling him to prove it. Now that he's back, the bullying continues. They ask for a sign from heaven. And this could be anything. Maybe they want a spontaneous thunderstorm or a total eclipse. They want him to show that he has authority over creation. You see, false teachers used to come in Jesus' day promising that they were the Messiah, promising that they could show you any miracle that you wanted to see with just one word. Follow me, they said. And so maybe the Pharisees here want to show how Jesus is fake, since he won't defy the laws of nature for them. But reading this makes us think about how Satan tempted Jesus in the desert, and how that experience was perhaps meant to get him ready for these kinds of moments. You see, then, and in this situation, Jesus was asked to give proof that he was the Messiah, Throw yourself off this high cliff. Make these stones turn into bread. And I was thinking about how when we're challenged like like this, when our pride is tweaked and our ability is questioned and people say, oh yeah, prove it. You can do that? Show me. We want to show how much we really can do to make them wrong. And in his humanity, Jesus must have struggled with that. Maybe he wanted to put his display on, pow- on his power on display, but he refuses. I was thinking about, when Jesus does miracles in the Bible, they were done for two reasons I can think of. One was to help people in great physical or emotional need. The other was to give honor to God so that his glory might be demonstrated to those who were present. He never did signs and wonders just because people taunted him to do it. He never did miracles just for show. We've already read in this gospel how these leaders think that his power comes from an evil spirit. So for them to demand a sign in this way is not sincere. Jesus sighs deeply in his spirit. And Mark doesn't tell us what emotion is going on there, but we wonder if the Lord is irritated. We wonder if he's discouraged, if he's weary, if he knows the futility of this interaction. And he asks them, why are you doing this? Why does this generation ask for a sign of When he mentions this generation, he's not speaking of those who live at the same time as he does. He's talking about people like this who require proof of the supernatural before they will believe. That happens in every generation. You and I know people like that. As he asks why, it makes us wonder if anyone in the crowd felt a twinge of remorse for this inappropriate request. Here is what his question makes me think about. When people want a sign to satisfy their prideful need to know, when desire for proof surpasses the desire to know and actually follow God, when people demand more instead of being in awe of what has already been given, the Lord may say no. He may give a boundary, finish up the conversation like he does here, until they are willing to meet him as he is, and being ready to exercise just a little bit of faith, a little bit of respect or reverence. Ironically, the greatest sign they could know was right in front of them. Jesus was the proof from God. But that's not how they see it. There's an idea here for us as well, for the church In conversations that we have with those who are outside the faith, with those who are opposed to the existence of God, we may feel sometimes like our witness falls short. So we pray for wisdom and relevance and amazing ways to tell our neighbors and friends who God is. We hear people tearing down God and we wish, God, do something! Show them, convince them of who you are. We wish that the church might be more of a shining example of God's greatness. And in those moments, we have to be careful that we're not just hoping for a sign from God so that we don't look foolish. In the eyes of those who don't believe. Because our pride is not the point. Our reputation isn't on the line. We need to be obedient to who he calls us to be, pointing to all that God has already done to make himself real. There is a beautiful poem by Elizabeth Barrett Browning called Aurora Lee. And in it, she talks about the natural and the spiritual world and all of the ways that God has given us to know him. She says, think about an older person's face. Think about the hum of the bumblebee the spinning stars, the very blood in our veins, the creation of trees and stones and leaves, the pecking bird and the grazing horse. And then she says this: "Earth is crammed with heaven, and every common bush afire with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit round it and pluck blackberries. There are those of us who see the presence of God all around us. And there are those, like these leaders here, who refuse to appreciate all that God has given, demanding that God give them more. Jesus asks why they need more proof before telling them they will have none. He ends the conversation by getting into a boat and leaving again. They're challenging his identity, but they aren't there to seek truth. So he's done. And it may be in our lifetime that we may know it may be us looking for a sign, and Jesus will say no. And it may be in those moments that he wants to and is willing to help those people to find a little bit of faith instead. So... For those who seek an amazing thing apart from the son that God sent, they might be disappointed. But for those who are truly following the Lord, we turn to our next interaction. As Jesus heads out with the disciples, he wants to give them some wisdom. Probably with the conflict still on his mind, he warns the disciples, be careful of the yeast, the leaven, the leaven is a better uh, rendering here, of the Pharisees and of Herod. They don't know what he's talking about. But because they've forgotten to bring more bread, they think that this is what his comment means. So he asks them a question. Why are you talking about bread? Have you ever had that experience? You're talking to someone and all of a sudden they say this nonsensical thing that has absolutely nothing to do with what you're talking about. And you're like, hello, I'm right here. I'm trying to talk to you. So let's talk about his warning first, and then let's examine his question, which leads to other questions. Jesus is giving them a very useful piece of advice here. He is calling them to discern and think about the influence around them that could infiltrate their hearts and minds. Remember that leaven in Jewish thought is a metaphor of what could be tainted in the bread-making process that could then rot the whole batch. The part that gets saved from the previous batch of dough to facilitate the rising of the next was the leaven. But it was susceptible to going bad in the fermentation process, especially then. And if that went bad, then the leaven that was used to make the new bread would be unsafe to eat. You see, what the Pharisees and Herod have in common is that they oppose Jesus. But they are leaders for God in the political and the spiritual realm. But their toxic influence could spread harm to those who earnestly are trying to follow the Lord. So Jesus tells the disciples, be careful. Don't get mixed up with them in such a way that your faith is ruined. What we have seen in our study so far in the book of Mark is that the Pharisees prize tradition. Sometimes above God. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Herod represents a love of self and staying tied to the power that the world offers. And Jesus is trying to tell his closest friends, don't be like that. When the disciples fail to grasp his deeper meaning, he asks them, why are you talking about not having bread again? Then Jesus takes the conversation in a whole new direction, and this warning is left for later. Instead, he starts asking them a series of questions designed to remind them of the experience that they've just shared together in their travels. Why should you be worried about enough bread when I've just fed over 9,000 people with not very much resource? His questions are meant for them to be able to see in their minds everything that he's accomplished and how their faith should have been deepened because of what they saw. Experience is a powerful teacher for us. When God acts on our behalf, we need to remember it well. So the next time when we're wondering where our resource is going to come from, when we're worried that we don't have enough, we can recall what a good father he is. When we are witnesses of God's care over us, we should rehearse it. We should tell other people. We should make a marker about what he has done so that we can go back and we can think about it. This gives us freedom, then, as we trust God for who he is. You see, the disciples are worried that they're not going to have enough bread for the trip. And Jesus is telling them in the form of questions. I can handle that. I did that. Remember, you were there. I have a perfect track record about that. You see, they're already worried about something he's already known for doing. In this case, Jesus stays engaged with them. He keeps asking questions because they are his friends. They're struggling to know what he's trying to teach them. How often has this happened to us? How often do we say to ourselves, Man, I already learned this lesson, and here I am learning it again. When have we stayed at a shallow level of fretting? when the Lord was wanting to talk to us about deeper things in our lives. Have you ever heard of the Little Red Book? It's the highest-selling book on golf ever written. Another Father's Day thing. It's kind of a Bible for people who golf. It was co-authored by Bud Schrake and the late Harvey Pennock, who was a coach who helped many athletes make it into the World Golf Hall of Fame. He said, you know, when people are golfing, most people, they're not thinking on the course. They're worrying. So here's what he says. Worry is a misuse of your mind on the golf course. Whatever your obstacle, worry will only make it more difficult. Worry causes your muscles to tense up, and it is impossible to make a good golf swing when your muscles are too tense. Rather than worrying, be mindful of the shot at hand and go ahead and play it as if you are going to hit the best shot of your life. You really might do it. You see, the disciples were not present to Jesus in this moment. They were not listening because they were focused on bread. They weren't mindful of everything that they had with him in the boat. They were worried. And worry keeps our focus on ourselves. Worry keeps our focus on this little thing that we are doing this to. And it takes us away from what the Lord is trying to say to us. It takes us away from what the Lord is trying to instill in us. It keeps us from knowing him fully. You see, in golf and in life, worry will make us choke. So are there ways that we are forgetting what the Lord has done for us? Is it possible that we could be distracted right now from hearing what the Lord is trying to say to us because we are worried and thinking and focusing in on that? Is our fear keeping us from seeing where God wants us to go? In this passage, both the Pharisees and the disciples needed to be challenged. They needed... To be challenged for their lack of trust and understanding. In hopes that they will grow, the questions of Jesus forced them to wrestle with the truth that they cannot come up with on their own. The Pharisees wanted too much. The disciples grasped too little. God is big enough for our questions, our brokenness, our ineptitudes. But he also responds to us in surprising ways. We do not control his responses to us or his questions, or his challenge. We do not script that. Last week, we talked about how Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And today, we see how that same Lord is not one who gives answers we can predict. So in those moments, it's good to take time and stillness before the Lord, to try and discern what it is that he's saying to us, to seek to know him as he is to seek to know him more, to ask what he's trying to tell us, to give him our pride and our fear of not being enough and not having enough. So let us take time for quiet, listening to what the Lord might be asking us. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about the Free Methodist Church of Santa Barbara, you can visit us online at fmcsb.org. We pray this message has been a blessing to you.